KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Over the past few months, we've seen an unusual amount of dead animals washing up on the Jersey Shore. A dead humpback whale washed up near Mississippi Avenue in Atlantic City Saturday following two others in Atlantic City and Strathmere since the beginning of December. Sheila Dean is director of the Marine Mammal Stranding Center in Brigantine. She says they investigate the cause of death every time, but don't always get a definitive answer. And this is what's called an unusual mortality event. It's a shame um, they are a federal, federally protected and endangered animal. There was a fourth whale found after that report from KYW's Mike Doherty and KYW's John McDevitt reported on several dead dolphins found in February. The body of an adult male bottlenose dolphin was found along the beach near 50th Street in Avalon late Monday afternoon. The other three dead dolphins found in February were in Sandy Hook. What caused their deaths has yet to be determined as well. And this isn't just limited to the East Coast. Off the shore of Alaska, billions of snow crabs disappeared this season. So what is happening in the oceans? Did humans somehow cause this and should we be concerned? We could probably come up with several different examples of where we've made such a negative impact that we probably can't undo what we have done in a short period of time. That's Dr. Lisa Rodriguez, Associate Professor of Environmental Science at Villanova University. I wanted to talk with her and her colleague about all this, Dr. Samantha Chapman, Professor of Biology at Villanova. We have done things to fix things in the past. So people are like, they throw their hands up and we can't do anything about this. But that certainly is not true. We get into what's causing these animal deaths and other problems in the oceans, why we should all take a breath before reacting, and what we can do to help. So I will start with a very broad question, and I'll start with you, Lisa. Overall, how would you categorize kind of the state of the oceans in the world right now? So I think overall, the oceans around the world are struggling for a variety of different reasons, human impacts, climate change, development, various different things that that we are doing. And I think we could probably find examples from around the world that are showing that ecosystems, water quality, all sorts of things are being negatively impacted and are at some level of stress. Sam, I'm curious, what I think we tend just as lay people to kind of treat everything like it's separate, like this river is this river and this lake is this lake and this ocean is this ocean, but everything is interconnected and dependent on each other when it kind of comes to all the waterways, correct? Yeah, Matt, that's so funny. You just said it just like that. I was just reading a paper this morning, getting ready for this podcast about something called ecosystem entanglement. It's this idea that ecosystems are ever more joined because of the way that we've modified them. So I'll give you an example. You know, a creek in Lancaster County around here that runs off from a farm has tiling associated with it to deliver water more efficiently sometimes. And that moves water quickly down into the bay, which moves it often with bigger rain events more quickly off of the land and then out into the ocean. And so it's not only that these ecosystems are naturally entangled, there are things that we're doing. And like Lisa said, one of them is climate change and bigger rain events that are ever more 
commingling them and the effects that we do to one affect the other. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Lisa, all the things you mentioned that are concerning, if you had to put together kind of a depth chart of things that should keep us up at night with regards to <laughs> oceans, what would be at the the top of the list as far as problem and what it could cause going forward? Well, I guess I would say at first I would encourage us to reduce our alarmism with some of these things. Like, I, I think it is important that just like what we're doing here is talking about it, becoming more knowledgeable so that we can understand how to make changes. And so I think from my point of view, the human activities are the thing I think are the most important because those are things that we could potentially change. They also, I sort of view what we're doing as humans, sometimes good, but often bad can have repercussions that we don't really understand, but also impact things like climate. Some of the things that Sam just mentioned, I think that my top thing would be that we should be educating people so that they can make better choices and that we can do better things, I think, going forward. You mentioned alarmism, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about as I was thinking about this, Sam, is a lot of people of good faith will talk about things and they will use apocalyptic language and they will use, you know, how bad this is and they will put a number on it. And if you keep doing that, everything starts to sound the same when you're talking about this and it loses any kind of impact that people wanted to to put on something. So it really is important that we have proper context with Yes, this isn't bad, but this is something that does happen every so many years, stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And a lot of times people trying to do the right thing can be their own worst enemy in this case. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think scientists debate on how much to talk about negative things versus having hopeful things when we're not talking about our data, but we're talking about policy. And I really um, come down on the side of we have done things to fix things in the past. so. The whales have come back mostly from whaling days. Populations have really rebounded. The ozone hole is a lot better than it was, you know, 50 years ago. The Delaware River is enormously cleaner than it was a couple decades ago. So it's like we're chipping away, but then there are, as Lisa said, like new problems that humans have maybe unknowingly created, particularly for the oceans and bodies of water. And so we have power to do things about them. And I think alarmism gets in the way, Matt. I think you're right. It's like people are like, they throw their hands up and we can't do anything about this. But that certainly is not true, particularly with more regulations that we now have, with more globalization and marine protected areas and sanctuaries that are cross nations. There's lots we can do. That being said... The thing that led me to this conversation was, and I'll ask this of you, Lisa, we've had a several whales wash up on beaches. And a few weeks before these made the headlines, there was that story of a certain type of crab off the coast of Alaska, which like they all disappeared, like billions of them. And to a layman, I mostly the crab thing, I'm, I think, that's not really good at all. That sounds like really apocalyptic in a way. As an expert, 
how alarmed are you at these things? And am I doing a poor job by putting them together? Are they in two separate pots? So that's a gr- I think that's a great point that you're making. I think if we start with the whale example and the whale strandings, because I think that links back to what Sam most directly was just talking about. Part of the problem I see with a lot of the strandings is, which is not on its surface a problem, is all the success that we've had with increasing whale populations. The majority of whales that are stranding are ones that are just in, in much more much higher numbers, much um, healthier popula- populations. And so odds, like if we're just going to play the odds, right, the odds are that we're going to see more of this happening because there are just more whales out there. At the same time, humans are spending so much more time in the near shore ocean than we would have done previously. And so we're encountering the whales much more. So things like whale strikes, interactions with vessels of other kinds, right? All those things are just increasing, which maybe can cause on the on the one end can be very stressful for the whales and may cause them to then strand. But on the other hand, there's just all these multiple interactions that we scientifically, we actually really don't understand very well, right? So we don't really have a good idea of what some of the impacts are in that local area off the coast of New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, say in the Northeast, associated with the offshore wind that are that's going in. And so there's a lot of like uncertainty. The certainty is there are lots of actually whales in the water in that part of the world. And so that part, it's not that surprising that we're seeing strandings happen. The crabs, I think, are slightly related. And and also, you know, we can discuss more. There are other problems that are probably contributing to what's happening with the whales. But I think some of the good that we've been doing in our recent past for the environment is now coming back to cause some of these unexpected things because, you know, humans are still here. We're still here and we're still doing all the things that we've always done. And that's having a negative impact as well. One of the kind of secondary headlines that came out of the actual whales, you know, being stranded was concern that the uh, wind, the windmills out into the ocean could have something to do with that. And I guess it's worth investigating. But (laughs) to me, as a layman, I think whales are smarter than to run themselves into windmills. But is there (laughs) is there a there there? Yeah, I think that's a great thing that we should talk a little bit about is the wind turbines, offshore wind that is now sort of increasing in number off of the coast of the Northeast will provide renewable energy to large, large populations and and a large area. And there has been some suggestion that may be there to blame for some of the strandings that we talked about earlier. Right now, the science says that that's very, very unlikely, that the investigations that they do to secure new locations for each individual turbine does create some noise underwater, but that part of the regulation of having that in place, they have to have spotter boats. So they have boats that are adjacent to things that are drilling and other things, and though there are people on board who's only role in the whole process is to watch for whales and other large mammals. And they record when they see them and all kinds of things. It's unlikely that that activity is 
is having a negative impact. And honestly, if it if it was oil and gas drilling that's happening in the Gulf of Mexico would have just as much of an impact. And we don't see that happening there. You know, so there are possibly what's happening is that the migration routes of the whales are shifting because of climate change. And so the signals that they're using to swim north or swim south based on temperature or uh, or adjusting. And so the pathways that they're taking may be slightly different than they used to be historically. But really switching, if we were if we were able to use more renewable energy, we could reduce our carbon footprint. We could maybe have a, a more positive impact on our CO2 emissions and, and you know, maybe have a, an impact on that temperature change. So really, I think it could only be positive for the whales if we have more wind available. Um, and like I said, at least studies that have been done, which are admittedly minimal, but the studies that have been done don't really show any kind of negative impact. Yeah, only uh, just two little additions. I've read that oil and gas exploration, they do use some of these air guns that make much loud, louder noises than would ever be used in building a wind product project. And so that's one thing. Plus, there's so much less of a likelihood of oil spills happening when you're putting in wind, which are obviously detrimental to whales and all kinds of marine life. And so I think I agree with Lisa. I think the chances of wind energy being problematic for whales is a distraction. So with the crab thing, Lisa, like, yeah, do we have because they real? I mean, the articles I read was just basically, yeah, they're not there. There's the little ones, but there's almost like and I don't know if generation is the right word, but just like this whole Right. Group of crabs. And when I say group, I don't mean like a dozen, like billions that just aren't there. Do we know if they're dead? Did they go to colder water? Like, or are we, am I, what, what do we think's happening? So that, that's super interesting. So yeah, you're right. This is a huge die off. You know, they believe that they are dead, that they didn't necessarily just move. And the numbers are saying something like 87%, 80 to 87% of the population that was there just a year ago was gone by this past fall, um, which is huge. That's a huge loss. The biggest culprit seems to be climate change and not just not just climate change in a sort of general kind of broad sense, but that in, I think it was 2019 and 2020, there was a large marine heat wave in that part of Alaska. So what that is, is sort of like how we can have a heat wave on land um, in one summer. This is much higher temperature water that moves into the bay areas and the locations where these crabs live. Not places that we want to swim, probably, but sort of three degrees or so Celsius higher than what it would normally be there. And what that has resulted in is an increase in the crab's metabolism. So invertebrates, unlike us, unlike mammals, are not able to control their own body temperature. And they, when the temperature around them increases, all of their body's activities also increase, which means that they start to eat more, like there's, they run around more, there's all, their metabolism just increases. And what they think, one of the papers that I read about this is what they think is happening is that those crabs, when that happens, when the temperature increases and their metabolism ramps up, they start feeding like crazy and they run out of food. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a boom and bust population where the population has just 
increased so much it, there the environment can no longer support it for a variety of different reasons and so it crashes and that's what they think in part has happened mm. that where it was enough to shut down the fishery so we have then huge economic impacts for the people who rely on this this environment and that because of the life cycle of the the crabs themselves they take about five years or so, five to six years, I think, to get to the size where they are able to be fished again, that that fishery is probably going to be closed for at least the next five years. And then they'll see whether they come back. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Samantha Chapman and Dr. Lisa Rodriguez right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back continuing our conversation with Dr. Lisa Rodriguez and Dr. Samantha Chapman, both of Villanova University. Sam, I think this, to me, this does point out, like, you kind of know it, but when you start to hear it kind of broken down to me, just how fragile ecosystems are and how little it takes to throw the whole thing out of kilter. And frankly, when you start to really take that in and appreciate it, it's kind of surprising we don't have more situations like this, no? Yes. And I think that that's my biggest concern with, and I think about this more so, that was a really great explanation by Lisa about like temperature effects on organisms. And I don't think so much about animals as she does. So she knows a lot more about them, but I think about it from like the algal point of view or the plant point of view or the coastal ecosystem point of view. And and so in those cases, it's not so much temperature, but it's like we perturb the amount of nutrients, like in particular nitrogen. So in the case of all the manatee die-offs in Florida that we've been seeing over the past couple of years, same kind of thing, right? Marine mammals in this case, all of that is being driven. And again, There is a lot of politics and fighting about this issue. I just read this big retraction that someone or response to someone else. And they're, you know, Matt, these are like dorky scientist papers going back and forth. But they're fighting because the stakes are so high because there's so much development in Florida. But it's not just Florida. The same kind of thing just happened up in Cape Cod where nutrients are just running off into the water it causes these huge blooms of like a boom and bust, just like Lisa said, right? All these algae grow really fast because they are like, oh, there's all this new food for me. There's all these nutrients. And then they shade out the seagrass that the manatees usually eat. And then the seagrasses die. And then the manatees starve to death. And we have to have people out there on boats feeding them, you know, iceberg lettuce, right? It's like the ultimate disaster, (laughs) right? And so, no, I, I think that these, these kind of breakdowns and feedbacks are the things that keep me up at night because they are happening more and we're seeing them more. And I just read yesterday, like nutrient increases into bodies of water have increased by two times in the past 50 years. That's a crazy amount of, we haven't increased CO2 by two times yet, right? This is like happening really fast. And so, yeah, it makes me very nervous. To that point, Lisa, The thing about this is, I think, if you don't want to care about this, we are at a point you can still shut it out. However, it seems to me things like this, they kind of move slowly and until they don't. And then things can unravel quickly where 
things start to happen that you can't ignore and things start to happen that impact you in a daily and a personal way that you can't just close a browser and not care about it. And am I off on this or is this kind of what you could see if, if certain things break down and these problems start to feed on each other? No, absolutely. I think you, you've you hit the nail on the head with all of this. There, there are so many tipping points where I sort of imagine, you know, if you're trying to push a boulder up a hill, it's going to take a little while, right? We're pushing it. We're pushing it up. We're pushing it up. Eventually, we get to the top and it's going to tip back down. We're never going to get it back over again, right? There are going to be these humps that we pass that are basically points of no return, and I think that's what's starting to happen. And we start to see this. I mean, we the the ecosystem that I study are coral reefs. We see this with coral reefs around the world where they are able to deal with some level of stress often, but then they're bombarded by multiple different things. And the entire landscape, the ecosystem under the water can change very quickly, but it's rarely will it ever go back certainly not in our lifetimes maybe not within the next generation that it'll will go back and so i think you're right i think probably for most people listening to this you know we're probably all in a in a privileged category where we can kind of ignore some of nature if we want to and that we can get by in our daily lives without without having to reflect on what are our decisions what impact they have but that at some point we are all going to become uncomfortable by things happening in nature that are just not no that we're we no longer have the opportunity to revert back to the way things were um and part of the reason i mean i think sam said this really well too is i think part of the reason is that nature operates in really short short conditions very narrow bands that's the way to say it very narrow bands of particular ideal conditions. It's very picky, you know, so things can be too hot, too cold. There's always this like Goldilocks just right. And when we move kind of north or south of that, I think then that's when we run into problems and where they become dire, in my view, is when we reach a point where we actually cannot undo what we've done. And there are probably, we could probably come up with several different examples of where we've made such a negative impact that we that we probably can't undo what we have done in a in a short period of time. Can you name me a couple? So reefs would be one. There could be there are many like in Florida, there there are many examples of reefs that are probably never going to look the way that they looked even just 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It's not to say they will never recover. Like that's the part of me that you know, wants to be cautious about it and not be completely alarmist. They will probably recover, but they won't have the same level of diversity that they had before. We will have lost some species that just cannot cope and and are gone now. And it may not happen in our lifetime or our children's lifetime. It, It may take a very long time for them to revert. Sam, do you have anything like that that jumps out at you as something that the damage we've, the boulders already over the mountain? Yeah, I was going to ask Lisa whether she thought that about reefs. And I've always, like, we don't talk about this when we see each other in the hallway, but (laughs) I think that being a reef biologist right now, this is like one of the most depressing jobs (laughs) because because it's really true. I mean, 
nature is resilient. It operates in small bands, but to some extent on nature on land, I think it's a little bit more resilient and nature in the ocean and in particular reefs, which have these really tight controlled processes are just kind of over the edge. And I think it's got a, there's got a lot of grief associated with working on coral reefs and seeing them change. Um, I think that another example of something that's past a tipping point is these, these red tides that are happening in Florida. And I really hope, you know, New Jersey, for example, has pretty good water quality. We're lucky that it's as good as it is, right? Because otherwise we could be experiencing same similar things. And like you said, Matt, and this isn't necessarily answering your tipping point question, but it's answering the question of like, you can't ignore it. If you've ever been outside during a red tide, and I have in Florida, I mean, you literally have to catch your breath, right? And I don't have asthma or any major respiratory issues. But for people that do, or kids or older people or what have you, you can't breathe when you go outside. So that's a pretty, that's going to affect a lot of people's lives. So I think some of these systems in the whole like Everglades to Florida Keys to the two estuaries on either side, that system is, I hope that that is not past the tipping point, but it sure seems to be, especially with increasing storms, right? Storms just make it worse because they rinse more nutrients off the land. That causes the algal blooms, that causes the red tide toxins, and yeah. Let's try to flip the switch a little bit because we talked earlier about how, you know, the Delaware River is cleaner and there are more whales. What are some things that we are getting right with the oceans and with the waterways that really encourage you? Um, are there any things that jump out on, on the right side of things that you, you really like? We'll start, I'll start with you, Lisa. Start with Sam. <laughs> Let me think. Probably. <laughs> it probably is easier to start with me because my ecosystems are like, you know, lots of money towards them right now. Let's bring them back. So um, there's this, the Biden Harris administration just issued this press release that I just saw in some newsletter. And it essentially says we're putting tons of money into these nature-based climate solutions. Things like salt marshes and mangroves have the benefit of protecting us against big storms, but they also suck up lots of carbon and nutrients if we let them. And so one thing that is really hopeful is the realization, not just here in the U.S., although we're really getting on board, but across the world, that these systems can really help us. And the cool thing is with Lisa's work is if we plant more mangroves, which there's a lot of funding to do around the world, right? I'm about to go to this meeting in Colombia this summer where Apple is buying up huge swaths of mangroves in the country of Colombia, right? And the good news there is if you can have mangroves more intact, then that really helps the reefs because it takes a bunch of the nutrient runoff and sediment runoff that goes out onto the reefs, which I think, Lisa, I would say are more sensitive mm -hmm. systems, so, yeah, I think that that's really hopeful, right? If we can get these green bands around our coastlines back to some better state than they're in right now, I think that would be really hopeful. So there are, for reefs, what's really starting to push the research now is our survivor corals. So looking at restoration efforts, what about, what genetically about individual coral colonies make them survivors in the environment that we as humans have now messed up and created. And there are some, there are definitely different species and also individuals within species that are just hardier. 
and there are lots of so we've been picking on Florida a little bit, but what there's a lot of good work on on coral restoration being done in Florida and the Florida Keys where they're uh, identifying genotypes of corals, genetic makeups of corals that are doing the best. They're growing them up in labs and then transplanting those ones back out onto the reef to try to grow, to speed up the process of, of recruitment on reefs. And that's happening. And then I also see, so a lot of my work is done in, in smaller island nations. The positive that I see there that gives me hope is that those people who live in those different countries, they know what needs to be done. Like they're, for the most part, my sense is that they're very much on board with the things that they need to do and how their actions negatively or positively impact their local environment. And it's because they see it, right? It's so much easier when you can see what you're doing. We are more, much more removed from all of that. And so I think we can learn from what some of these other places are doing. You know, we're, we have such a huge footprint and a huge impact that I think in this country, we could certainly learn from some of these other smaller places because eventually it is like we've been talking about, it is going to affect us here as well. Lisa, I'm curious when it comes to dealing with the oceans and trying to address these problems, are oceans tougher than if we were dealing with a, a marsh or a lake in the idea that said marsh and lake is in Florida and whatever you think of the political situation, Florida knows it's there and Florida can address it. Oceans are everywhere. You know, all countries deal with them. Does it make it harder to address things just simply because of the levels of bureaucracy you probably have to go through to just do testing, to do investigations and and stuff like that? Does it present just a bigger problem just because of kind of the nature of what an ocean is? I think I think that's very true. To some degree, there's the size and scope of the ocean is so much greater than any land or total land mass, right? And so just that vastness makes it difficult to deal with. It also makes it difficult to sometimes see the problem too, right? Because I mean, one of the ways that historically humans have always dealt with waste has just been to dump it in the into the ocean, right? The solution to pollution is dilution. That's what the, what our <laughs> philosophy has always been. And so it takes a while to see it, to see that we are having a negative impact. But then it also does require a lot of collaboration because like you said, it, it's crossing multiple political boundaries. There is a portion in the middle that's are known as high seas that is more internationally governed. And so it can be a challenge. And also, I think the biggest challenge is that we are not creatures of the ocean, right? We have not adapted to inhabit that world. It's very difficult to observe those kinds of things. You know, we can't breathe underwater. We we can't really see underwater. And so all of that means that, you know, we're, we're having to modify and, and adjust what we do in order to be able to really study what's there. And I'd like to ask both of you, we talked earlier about alarmism and how it can lead people to just kind of put their hands up and what can you do? I'm just one person. If somebody's listening to this and they want to know, well, how can I help? This all seems like so overwhelming and maybe I live 150 miles from any major waterway or anything like that. But what would you tell somebody that that wants to be concerned about the right things and try to do their part. Sam, I'll start with you. 
Of course, my answer to these things is always has to do with plants, right? So don't use fertilizer on your lawn because it goes into the ocean eventually. And it goes into rivers and creeks and increases fish kills and all the things. Um, and have a bunch of plants in your yard if you have a yard that take up a bunch of nutrients. Another thing you could do is if you don't have a yard, let's say, and you have a local park, find a way to get that park to put in like a native little garden or something, right? These, this slowing down of water, which our engineering department does a lot of here at Villanova, as it's moving over the land is hugely effective, right? If we could get some of that water, less nutrients in it and slow it down with plants, I think it would be amazing. And we can do it in tiny places. A tiny plot can have an enormous effect on these kinds of things. So that's what my thing would be. Lisa? So I, I agree with all those. And I also think if you when you live in a city that's inland, like Philadelphia is, we have to remember that we are connected to the ocean, that, you know, by the Schuylkill River, by the Delaware River, every single drain that you see on every sidewalk, that eventually is going to go to the ocean. And so keeping litter off the streets um, or doing park cleanups, I think those can have a really positive impact. It feels like a small thing, but that means that that's one less chip bag going into the ocean and having a negative impact and be, and maybe being there forever as well. I think doing our best to minimize litter in our cities can actually have a very positive impact. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon and we'll have another episode out soon.